As I mentioned, we are continuing in a series within Deuteronomy called Practical Matters. And today in particular, we're going to look at how God wants his people to handle certain kinds of conflict. And on the, on the grander scale, conflict when it comes to peoples and as the people encounter foreign peoples as they enter the promised land, but then two, between individuals under unique kinds of circumstances. And so we're going to look at both of those things. Deuteronomy is the, just to remind, a second giving, a re-giving of God's law to the people who had been wandering through the desert after they were rescued out of Egypt. And so they were given the law. They didn't want to go in the land. God had them wander for 40 years. The last generation died off. They're about to get ready to go in. And so this is the re-giving of the law. It is a foundational, really important book that is quoted and used throughout the New Testament, including, remind you, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Where does he quote three times? Deuteronomy. So that's where we are. And today, we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 20 to begin. Let's read nine verses. Let's do this. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and an army larger than yours, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, is with you. When you're about to engage in battle, the priest is to come forward and address the army. He is to say to them, listen, Israel, today you are about to engage in a battle with your enemies. Do not be cowardly. Do not be afraid, alarmed, or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers are to address the army. And what we're about to see is what I like to call the reverse draft. Okay? Has any man built a new house and not dedicate it? Let him leave and return home. we got to shrink our army. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man dedicate it. Has any man planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy its fruit? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man enjoy its fruit. Has any man become engaged to a woman and not married her? Let him leave. Return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man marry her. The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who is afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home so that his brothers won't lose heart as he did. Seems like a fairly efficient way to shrink your fighting force. Yes? When the officers have finished addressing the army, they will appoint military commanders to lead it. It would have been awkward if they had done it beforehand and they left. Now, our first point, as we look through both chapter 20 and 19, getting into some of the details. And really the title of this sermon is that God cares about the details. And in this first one, we're gonna zoom in on the first three aspects of that reverse draft and seeing that God cares about the simple, ordinary things of life. Before we go there, I wanna address kind of an elephant in the room, perhaps for some of us, uh, for, for some of us within this reverse draft as well. And that is the idea that what we see in this passage, and it's mentioned elsewhere, like, um, in, in the text is the idea of holy war. Now, some people find that phrase cringeworthy, mostly because of its not uses, but abuses over the course of the history of the church. And I need to mention it here because for thousands of years, leaders, kings, emperors, politicians, including presidents of this country in my lifetime, have said we are going to invade, go to battle, go to war on God's behalf in that nation. 
The reason I point this out is because very clearly, in this very specific circumstance, here in Deuteronomy, this holy war, which is the idea of going to battle on God's behalf and him being the one that wins the battle, you have two instructions that are very necessary. Two conditions, you might call them, for holy war. God says, one, you were to have weaker firepower. In Deuteronomy 17, they're not allowed to have horses. And you were to have weaker numbers. And I mention this here because no nation in this world is in the place that Israel was. We just need to be clear about that. I cannot remember a time in our nation's history in which a president said, you know what, we're going to war, but the army's too big. Our weapons are too strong. Columbia class is too sophisticated. No, we don't do that. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying military. I'm not saying government is a bad thing. And God raises up military leaders. He raises up governments in order to limit injustice in the world. But we have to remember within these particular circumstances, if you were, if this happened today, and we'll just say America was Canaan. I'm not saying America's Canaanites. I'm just, pretend with me. It's it's an analogy. If America was Canaan and Israel were invading by sea and they came at us with 20-foot fishing boats and we went out there with subs and destroyers and aircraft carriers, we'd lose. That's the tempo of the text that we're reading when God says, you don't have superior fighting power, you don't have superior numbers, but you're going to win because I'm the one doing the fighting. And so we need to avoid the temptation to lift this out of Israel's history and lay it onto our own trajectory. John Piper summarizes it well. He says, Christ the church is the people of God and has no national form, but it too, like Abraham, is described as a people of sojourners, exiles, and aliens. Therefore, no nation today may claim to be the people of God as Israel was and presume to execute God's historical judgments. Okay, get that out of the way. Moving on. Back to the main point, looking at the reverse draft. We were seeing the details of who it is that God actually sends home. It's interesting. We see that he doesn't just care about the success of the people as a whole. He doesn't just care about providing for a particular tribe. But he actually cares for the provision of individuals within that people and within those tribes. And outside of the people who were afraid, the three justifications for people to return home were to dedicate their homes, to reap the harvest, to marry their wives, lest someone else enjoy the particular joys that God had chosen to provide for them. Now, I just have to say, for some people, we know that this would have been hard. And we know that looking no further than the warrior Uriah. You might remember, and this happened some 500 years later, slightly less, King David, while the people are out to battle, he stays back and he he sees a beautiful woman on a roof and he takes her and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And so he orders her husband to come back and he instructs him to go home because he wants a little marital union to happen to get him off the hook. But Uriah wouldn't go home. Why? His loyalty to his men his loyalty to his cause, his service is too important to him. And what we actually see in this text, not in a totalitarian way, I'm not making absolute claims. We're trying to 
bring out principles like Gary did last year, what we see is that God actually values a rhythm of life that prioritizes and makes space for his people to enjoy the simple, basic pleasures of God's provision and thereby enjoy God as their provider. We live in a world full of big causes and weighty missions, don't we? Some see a grand reputation or fame by which influence may come really as their greatest aim. Others see economic success as their greatest aim. Some see power as their greatest aim. And some fail in all of these things to simply enjoy, truly enjoy the basic, simple, ordinary things that God has blessed them with. Now, man, I'm going to poke fun at us for a moment because I think we have something to learn from ladies on this just based on our natures. And I... I listened a couple years ago to a professor of psychology being interviewed on the differences between men and women, the way they manifest, manifest in the American workplace. And one of the questions posed to this professor was, why are there so many fewer women that aspire to the highest, most powerful positions in corporate America? That if you were to take a pool, not talking capacity, just aspiration, take a pool of all the men and all the women, the pool of women who aspire to that is so much smaller than men. Why? And I'll never forget his response. He said, women in general, not making absolute claims here, are far less likely to want to sacrifice friendship they're far less likely to want to sacrifice family, to sacrifice children, and to sacrifice their time, to work 80, 90 plus hours a week for decades on end. And then he ended with this. He said, I think the better question isn't, why do so few women want this life, but why do so many men want this life? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Success isn't bad. Positions of influence and power, those aren't in and of themselves bad. At times, sacrifices are made for these things and they can be good. After all, some people did go to battle despite the fact that others went home. This isn't a totalitarian point. It's a principle that God actually makes room in his prescription for his people, for rhythms to enjoy the ordinary, simple things that he provides and thereby enjoying him as our provider. For us today, what does it look like to set the world down, to sit on your porch and delight in God's provision, to hold hands with your family, to gather around a table with your spiritual family, and to delight in God's provision, and thereby delight in God as our provider. Sometimes simple good things are more important than service and glory. In Ecclesiastes 5, I'll close this point with this. This is a book of wisdom from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. He says, here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because this is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. So much of our stress and discontent in our lives can be tied by the energy and focus we put on what could be, what isn't, as opposed to looking around and delighting what is and being grateful for it. God cares about the ordinary and simple things. As we continue through, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of whole, this thing, holy war, okay? 
It's been uncomfortable for many. And I just want to open up a personal story. When I was, when I was in sixth grade, I remember the drive to being dropped off first day of sixth grade is when my stepdad, who's a police officer, gave me like the talk, but it was the talk on steroids, okay? And so it wasn't just birds and the bees, but everything else that I needed to navigate now that I was going into middle school. And I remember that, and we got there, and it all happened on the way there so that he didn't have to look me in the face while he did it. We're in the car, and we're here. Good luck. And I was in middle school. And then I remember finally meeting kind of this crew of friends and all fairly nerdy. We loved basketball, but we were pretty terrible at it. So we kind of played off in the corner. And during recess, we battled Pokemon on our Game Boys, the red and blue versions, millennials who who remember. And then one of them, a few weeks in, invited me to a birthday party. I was so excited because this is a sense of belonging. Most of my friends had gone to a different middle school. We arrive, my stepdad comes in, he walks around. Within just a few minutes, he says, Zach, we're leaving, you can't stay. Tell him whatever you want, I'll be in the car. I was hurt, I was angry, and I didn't get it. But I found out later that my stepdad, who was a narcotic officer, who's an undercover narcotics officer for the police department, that he saw drug paraphernalia in their home. In his, a measure of grace, he did not make a giant scene about this. He knew that I cared about this friend. But in his mind, he didn't want to leave me there. He was guarding against a worser outcome. As we read the text that we're about to read, you know, the people of God are in a tricky situation. They are entering into a land full of people that reject their God, who worship idols, who do terrible and detestable things, including sacrificing children, babies. These are people whose hearts are hard. How is God to give his people their promised inheritance? To give the other people ample opportunity to leave, to protect his own people from idolatry and from inheriting practices like the sacrifice of babies. What course of action would lead to the best outcome? What course of action would protect the mission that his people are on. Verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you're to make an offer of peace. I just want you to hear that first. That's where we start. An offer of peace. Okay? If it accepts your offer of peace and opens its gates to you, all the people found in it will become forced laborers for you and serve you. However, if it does not make peace but wages war against you. You are to lay siege to it. So if they kind of surrender, proselytize there to be, become subservient to Israel. Verse 13, when the Lord your God hands it over to you, strike down all its males with the sword. But you take the women, the dependents, the animals, whatever else, all its spoils, plunder. You may enjoy the spoils of your enemies that the Lord your God has given to you. We see elsewhere, people are to be incorporated. Verse 15, this is how you're to treat all the cities that are far away from you and are not amongst the cities of these nations. However, you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must destroy them. Hethite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, two different things. The people that are far away, you just take out the males and others will be subservient to you. The people in the land, take them all out. Why the difference? Because they were going to be living in the land. 
And there was a distance there, proximity related to what? Verse 18, why? Why were they told to do this? Verse 18, so that they won't teach you to do all the detestable acts they do for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. I would say a passage like this in this verse 18 should really be confrontational for us. And it says, we shouldn't use a, a passage like this to diminish God's love, but instead it should demand a weightier view of sin. That's my contention this morning. And I wanna address some of these concerns. You see, earlier on in Deuteronomy, at the beginning, we saw that when he commanded them to go in, drive them out, wipe them out, he also really quickly added, and do not intermarry with them. And so some scholars have argued that throughout, there's a bit of hyperbole here, because you can't intermarry with a people you just wiped out. But nonetheless, regardless of where you fall there, there is something we see in Scripture that at times, children die at God's command. And we see that commanded here. And there's no getting away from this. So we're gonna hit it head on. We see it with Noah and the flood, which despite, and I have several small children and we have children's Bibles. And when you open up your random children's Bible to the story of Noah and the ark, they're all in the ark smiling <laughs> like this, right? <laughs> Tends to ignore what's going on outside the boat. We see this with Sodom and Gomorrah, children, the firstborn of the people of Egypt when Moses took the people out of the land. We see it with David's child by Bathsheba. God took the child with sickness. These are hard things. And as a parent of a six, four, two year old and a five month old, I think it's fair for us to wrestle with the fact that we just feel our children to be so precious. I will also tell you, as a parent of young children, that they are anything but innocent. (laughs) A little bit of levity, guys. Few points. These are truths of Scripture. One, all life belongs to God. Whether you like it or not, all life belongs to God. Two, all humanity, including children, have inherited sin from Adam. And sinfulness, David says, In iniquity was I conceived. Sinfulness, this thing that we inherit by virtue of being human from from our parents, from Adam, is punishable by wrath. Point three, holiness meets sin with wrath. And so when we come to a passage like this, we question the character of God. We question the nature of God. And I think a fair pushback to that is, well, then if God doesn't get to decide what justice is, who does? Because if it's not God, I would contend the alternatives only get worse. Let's pretend, sake of argument, chuck the Bible, right? Chuck the image of God. You are the result of millions of years of random biochemical processes. That's what got you here in this moment. Who gets to decide what what just is? You? Us? Last 120 years or so has shown that those two things fail pretty darn miserably. Deuteronomy 32 says the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. The faithful God without bias, he is righteous and true. It's God's justice. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, faithful in all of his acts. Lord, 
is near all who call out to him, all who call to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the, their cry for help and he saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name. What if this account didn't diminish God's love, but instead demands a weightier view of our own sin? A rebellion, a rejection of God. You see, sin doesn't care what God wants. Sin does what it wants. Sin is the reason that I cannot drop a single candy bar in a room full of two-year-olds. <laughs> Be a little more serious. Sin is the reason some 20 million children grow up without a, without a father many of whom just leave. Sin is the reason 23% of women and 13% of men have experienced physical violence at the hand of a partner. Sin, and I mention this next one because many of us remember this clearly. Sin is the reason that Hutu militias in 1994 killed over 500,000 of their Tutsi brothers in Rwanda. And our world is full of unrepentant sin this unashamed rebellion against God, against his will for our life. And you know, this kind of sin, it tells the God that created you that you don't want him. This kind of sin, it tells the God that provides for you that you don't need him. It tells the God that pursues you that you don't trust him. It tells the God that died for you that you don't love him. And when we happen upon a scripture in which sinfulness is actually punished as it deserves to be punished, with a complete wipeout. We don't ask, why did, it not, why did it take so long? We don't ask, how come those people weren't punished too? Don't they deserve it too? No, our response is far more convenient. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we see ourselves in the text. And the truth is, if someone who seems more innocent than me gets that as a consequence, then how much more do I deserve if this is true? And like children, like a child who disobeys over and over and over again and then complains to their parent that they don't like their consequence. So we are before God. It shouldn't diminish our view of God's love. It should demand a weightier view of our sin. And we point and we say, that's not fair. But the cross wasn't fair. God taking on flesh for you and me wasn't fair. Living the perfect life under the weight of all temptation for you, dying a brutal death for you, bearing the weight of your sin and your shame, that wasn't fair. But he who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of, of God. And our sin borne by the person of Christ was met by perfect holy wrath because it's what sin deserved. And that's what we see on the cross, church. God cares about the holiness of his people. Leviticus 20, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Philippians 2, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That's holiness, becoming more like Christ. Is holiness a priority? God cares about the holiness of his people. Do you care about yours and our relationships and what we watch and hear? Heck, our whole sex series, looking back, a holiness. And so we move on to our last passage, Deuteronomy 19. If you're in your text, move back. 
talk about holy war. God cares for the ordinary and the simple things. God cares about the holiness of his people and he's willing to go great lengths to protect that. And here in Deuteronomy 19, we're gonna see him zooming in that once the people are in the land, we wanna be able to provide for a conflict there. And I just love how much it points to Jesus. Here is the law concerning a case of someone who kills a person and flees there to save his life. Having killed his neighbor and accidentally without previously hating him. So we have an accidental death on our hands. If, for example, he goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings the ax to chop down a tree, but the blade flies off the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. I do wonder how many times did that have to happen <laughs> for it to make it in? Am I right? Like we're going chop and hide behind the tree. I do think there's lots of things in life. You see a warning label on something. You're like, who had to mess that up? <laughs> right? Like there's, there's a, hair, a hair iron right, that, that many of the ladies use. And warning, it's hot. Like who had to do what to put that warning label on there? My, one of my professors in seminary, small tangent, professors in seminary stayed at a, at a motel in the Midwest and he shared with us in, in one of the bathrooms, there was a sign that said, do not bleed out your chickens in the tub. <laughs> Who here would use that bathtub? <laughs> I digress. I digress. They're being warned. Okay. This could happen. It's probably happened before. That person may flee to one of these cities and live. We're talking about cities of refuge. Otherwise, the avenger of blood in the heat of his anger might pursue the one who committed manslaughter. You see, people, generally close family members, would have been appointed to avenge the death of the person who died. They didn't have the intricate, substantial law enforcement, law and order systems that we do today. Okay? You're like, what in the world is, they didn't have what we have. So unless less that person overtake him because the distance is great, strike him dead, yet he did not deserve to die since he did not previously hate his neighbor. These were cities of refuge. God was about to give them the land and they were gonna get three cities spaced throughout the land so that if someone were to die by accident, the person who would have been perceived at fault could flee to one of these cities. And as the land were to grow, they were gonna double. So eventually there would be six of these cities. And they would go before the elders of that particular city and seeking refuge and they would determine. Now, why? In Genesis 9, verse six, it says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. So the consequence of bloodshed was bloodshed. And so an avenger might come to these cities and they would be protected. They have ways of guarding against people abusing this, but more or less they would be protected until the high priest of that city died. And when that happened, the high priest's death would absolve. That death would pay for the death of that particular individual and they'd be able to go free legally unbound. Now, the reason I wanted to end here is because this entire scenario points us beautifully to the refuge that we find in Christ. I love how the refuge cities were spaced out all over the place so that no matter where you were, you were semi-near to one of them. And Jesus is near. Jesus is accessible to us. 
we see that Christ is our refuge from our accuser. First Peter 5. Peter writes, be sober-minded and alert your adversary. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The word satan, satanas, there, Greek, means accuser. And so in Christ, we come under the refuge of Christ. When someone gives their life to Jesus, when they seek refuge with Jesus, when they find their hope in Jesus, when they entrust themselves to Jesus, they have refuge from the accuser. We see that Jesus provides refuge from death. 1 Corinthians 15, when the corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that it is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. All right, this is, this is in the present looking forward, right? Already, but not yet. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, that Jesus came that death might die. In Christ, we find refuge from death. Finally, we find freedom in the death of a high priest. Hebrews 2. If you never read Hebrews, it connects the Old Testament and New Testament per- just beautifully. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. I'm talking about Jesus. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. but Christ goes beyond the city of refuge, church. You see, cities could only offer protection legally to those who accidentally or unintentionally killed someone. They could not protect a murderer. They could not protect, they could not offer safety or security or peace to the guilty. Jesus came to die for the guilty. Jesus came to offer refuge to the guilty to the one guilty of gossip, to the one guilty of envy, to the one guilty of lust, to the one who may not murder with his hands, but as Jesus says, commits murder in his hearts as he harbors anger towards his brother or sister. These, the faultless and the guiltless may have been protected here, but Jesus came so that any possible person, including the criminal hanging on the cross next to him in his final moments, could find refuge in him. And there's just something beautiful about that. And so we see that God wanted to provide for his people, but our ultimate provision came in the person of Jesus as he went to the cross for you and for me. And next month, I'm gonna mention this before we close. Next month, when we come together for baptism, one of the reasons that baptism is so celebratory, one of the reasons why it's one of our favorite services is because it proclaims this kind of truth to the world. Baptism is a declaration that the accuser's allegations do not lay claim on you. It is a proclamation that death has no hold on you. It is an affirmation that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It's a beautiful thing. Pray with me, church. God, I would ask that as we go from here, that as we think about the details from chapter 20, as we think about the nature of, your, of holiness in chapter 20, as we, as we think about the refuge we find in you in chapter 19, God, that we would be in awe of the way that you provide 
in just the way people need. You provided for your people then. You provide for your people now. Lord, help us to cling to you. Help us to find hope in you. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to you. God, there's just so much noise that we're surrounded by. Lord, we ask that you would help us to press that mute button so that we can hear you clearly. Help us to love, to be beacons of your light and love in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.